Well, Happy New Year to everyone. It is the uh, beginning of the new year, January the 8th, the Sunday of Epiphany, depending on which uh, tradition you are following. It is the uh, Sunday in which we return in our pattern here at Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church uh, to our series in Matthew, winter and spring in Matthew. This year we will take a, a break during the season of Lent leading up to Easter uh, to look at uh, more carefully at what occasioned uh, the gift of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. But for now, we return to Matthew, and I have to beg the indulgence of some of you as we take two weeks to recap and get a running start into our series. We're going to pick up with Matthew chapter 18 today. Matthew's message has been that something amazing and entirely unexpected has happened despite the fact that the prophet spoke clearly about it. Namely, that the promised kingdom has come. The promised king has arrived to effect the will of the Father upon the earth, even as it is in heaven. Matthew is saying, as stunning, as unexpected, as counterintuitive as this may seem, this kingdom has arrived in the person of Jesus, of Nazareth, born of Mary, son of Joseph. A historic man who walked in flesh and blood and died, but rose again to secure upon earth the reign of his righteousness. If that's true, what might it look like when it takes on flesh in 21st century North America and little old Flintstone, Georgia? And it is to that that we turn our attention today. Having established who Jesus was, what Jesus was about as the Son of God come in the flesh to make all things new. We read this, Matthew chapter 18, the first 20 verses. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever, receive, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. 
And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. And so it is with the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So it is not the will of my Father, forgive me, who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Brothers, this is the word of God to us, his people in 21st century North America. So let us ask that he will grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. So, Father, we do come to this time in this hour, for you have spoken and it came to be, you have commanded and it was done, and here before us in language that we can understand, we have it. And so, Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you would take what appears to us to be common words and you would strengthen us in our inner being, grant us courage in our inner, be inner being to hear them not as merely common words, but as the word of the living God, which is to us, his children, for the sake of his son, by the powerful working of his spirit. And so change us, Father, we pray. Protect us from error and feast us upon your truth, the glory of your great love for us through your son, Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. It's a long passage, and there's a lot in there. We're not going to cover it all. We're not going to turn over every stone. And so, yes, there will be time in the course of today's message that you will say, hey, he missed that. I know. I'm sorry. There's a lot there, and we could spend, well... The next several months, apologies, Rob, the next several months unpacking each of the words as we recap 
our series. But today, I want us to focus on the one theme that runs throughout, this theme of status. Status in the world, status in our lives, status in the kingdom. How do we go about knowing status, rightly naming status, pursuing it, and gaining it? And then the question becomes unexpectedly complicated when we ask the question with regard to status in the kingdom. Recognizing it, identifying it, pursuing it, gaining it, and securing, stewarding status in the kingdom. Every week we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it's a dangerous prayer. Because what would it actually look like should that kingdom, should that will actually exert itself in our world, in our lives? We presume we know what we're praying about, but as you and I all know, we rarely do most frequently catches us off guard. And we most, find, most frequently find ourselves angry and thinking, this is not how my day was supposed to go. These are not the people I was supposed to be doing life with. This is not how my week was supposed to unfold. We most often imagine a place, a circumstance, a condition in which there is no pain, there is nothing unexpected, there is no discomfort, there is no danger, there are no germs, there are no sadness, there are no tears, there are no temptations, there are no offenses. And while it's true that one day the promise is that there will be a day, there will be a place where there are no more tears, that is not yet the case. Those expectations are the product of an over-realized or even misplaced eschatology. The kingdom comes slowly and slowly establishes its reign of grace in a sinful world among a sinful people. And that is by design. for you and I, must be remade. The structures of feeling, thought, word, and deed that characterize our hearts and mind must be subverted and must be inverted. And brothers and sisters, in case you haven't noticed, that is a long an often painful process. Status is one of the primary areas where we need to be remade. For status in our world 
is to be vigorously fought for, vigorously sought for, and jealously defended. Every little piece of it that we are able to lay hold of. Status in the kingdom, however, is a grant of grace to be received humbly and gratefully and joyfully, shall I say even naively, as a child and stewarded generously and magnanimously to those who are around us. We all saw it, the whole recent political spectacle. Some of us are still recovering from it. You remember, it started a couple years ago with this massive field of candidates on one side of the political spectrum. How many were there? Like 55 or something like that? All of them jockeying for position in order to secure the number one position among their party, the coveted nomination. And then as the drama all unfolded like a reality TV show in more ways than one, yes, that's right. As it began to dawn on the 54 or 53 remaining candidates that they weren't going to make it to number one, then we watched as the secondary drama unfolded, as they all jockeyed and maneuvered and manipulated and regrouped and backpedaled and redefined themselves and respun their message in order to secure for themselves one of the many number two places of status in the party. Any position. I'll be a doorkeeper in your administration. Even a janitor if I can. The quest for status on full display. But this quest for status even saturates you and me. We come to experience it even in dinner table conversation. The story is told of three children who shall remain nameless. I'm not the only one with only three children. Arguing over who is going to be the first millionaire. No, I am. Uh-uh, I am. Well, fine. Then I'm going to be the first billionaire. That's nothing. I'm going to be the first trillionaire. Trillionaire. I'm going to be the first tenillionaire. Don't you think I'm grand? Of course, mother and father are patiently, maturely watching this all unfold, saying, I don't care who's the millionaire. I just want it to be one of you. And when my daughter becomes the first millionaire, 
You can see Marco and I strutting through the streets of Flintstone saying, my daughter's a millionaire. You want to touch me? Go ahead. You can shake my hand. I love you. We're not giving autographs, though, because that's worth money. This jockeying for position, this quest to determine and establish a pecking order to seek and to secure and to show our status among a given people in a given community is, brothers and sisters, ubiquitous. We wake up thinking about this thing. It saturates almost every relationship and responsibility. It seasons and shapes our almost every conversation and colors how we respond to any given circumstances. Wondering to ourselves, is this a threat to our quest for status? If so, then we suddenly become very anxious and fretful and frantic and even angry. And where we ask, will this somehow promote my quest for status? And then we're happy. I've had a great day. I've had a great week. I'm satisfied. I'm feeling good, feeling successful, praising the Lord because he's gracious. Status, real or imagined, potential or unrealized, is a powerful motivator. And so it is ubiquitous. Status, by which I am meaning the significance born of having attained a certain standing and perhaps having all of the accoutrements that go along with that standing is the driving force of most of humanity, most certainly in our culture. And this is one of the primary dynamics at work in most of our conversations. Whatever they are. Knowing what grants status in what communities and how to gain those things feels like it's just how things work. It's just, just life, Dan. That's just how life works. And yet, it will exhaust you. And it will crush you. And it will kill you. In fact, this frantic and fretful pursuit of all those promotions, accumulation of all those things that will provide status and standing, is so exhausting... That, the, that exhaustion in pursuit of status has itself become a status symbol. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so tired. I'm exhausted. Wow. You're really something. Well, no, it's just it's nothing. It's just what you got to do in this dog-eat-dog world. The quest for status to accumulate symbols of our status, to be recognized and honored for our status, is one of the greatest forces in our culture. As Nobel laureate economist John Harsanyi wrote, apart from economic payoffs, social status seems to be the most important incentive and motivating force 
of social behavior. Isn't that something? Social status. If we weren't concerned, think about this, just take this as a, as a mind game for a while. If we weren't concerned about status, what would happen to our economy? How much of our economy depends upon our pursuit, my pursuit and your pursuit, our pursuit of status? A lot of our economy. And this is why, because this question and this pursuit is ubiquitous, it is why the disciples ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's helpful to stop and reflect on how, on where this question arises in Matthew's telling of this story. It comes immediately following the whole temple tax episode at the end of chapter 17. You remember what happened. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the, drop, two, uh, the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Hey, who are you? Who is your teacher? Does your teacher not pay the tax? Is he too good for us? Who does he think he is? What, do you, what does he think exempts him from the tax? Everybody pays the tax. Are you somebody special? Well, Peter saying, well, he's no one special. He's just Jesus. And I'm no one special. I'm just his disciples. Of course we pay the tax. And Jesus says this, what do you think, Simon? Who do you think I am? From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From sons or from others? Well, from others, of course. The sons are exempt. You can begin to see the light flickering on. <laughs> Wait a minute, Jesus. Are you saying... Yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm the son. Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. It's a stunning turn of events. In just that short little exchange, Jesus has absolutely shattered everything they thought about gaining status in the world. Everything that they expected to, have, to be unfolding for them in the next coming weeks as, as Jesus enters Jerusalem and takes his throne has been shattered. Jesus, if the son walks into the temple, then he has every right to not pay the tax, and yet you turn around and pay the tax? Well, for crying out loud, if that's the case, then who's the greatest in the kingdom? we got to figure this out. After all, our entire life is taken up with knowing our place and finding it, securing it, so that we can have standing. What is the pecking order in the kingdom. 
What are the structures of status in the kingdom? Where do we fit? How do we function in this soon-to-arrive kingdom? And so they ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And then verses 3 through 20. And Matthew's telling of the story is one long answer to that question. It's important because when we visited this last time, we took this in parts. And we looked at the first couple verses, and then we looked at 7 through 9, and then 10 through 14, and then 15 through 20. And, we, and it's easy to lose sight of the fact that each one of those portions is part of Jesus' ongoing answer to that one question in Matthew's telling. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Well, the reason for it is because, as we said earlier, it's a stunning answer that he gives. For in reply to them, he calls to himself a child and he sets them in the midst of them. Now imagine, the, here there are 12 of them at least, plus Jesus, plus whoever else are around. These are big people. These are fishermen. These are tall grown-ups. And Jesus calls to him a child and sets them in the midst. Imagine that now. Imagine the look on the child's face. Imagine the look on the disciple's face. Imagine the stature of the child in the midst of all of these grown-ups. Do you remember when you were growing up? Do you remember when you were just tall enough to see the kneecaps of the people around you? And if there were too many kneecaps and one of them wasn't your father or your mother's, you got really, really nervous? Think of it. This is where we are. You can imagine the disciples scratching their head and saying, Jesus, we just asked a question. Why are you calling this child here? Did you hear us? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus, as though to hear their, the questions of their heart, the confusion of their heart, says, oh, I heard you. And I'm answering you. Behold the child. Unless you are turned, the ESV reads, unless you turn, but, in, but, the, but a more accurate translation of that is, unless you are turned and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a stunning answer. Never mind being greatest. How do we even get into the kingdom? Unless you become like a child, like children, you will never enter the kingdom. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, to become like a child. It's important that we understand here that the question of status is not, it's a question about an objective reality, not a subjective reality. It's a question about objective standing, not what I think of my own standing. Objectively speaking, it's who has status. Do you have status? It's not about subjective traits, nor even traits perceived about one by those who are around him. It's about something that is objective. It's about standing, significance, and secondarily about the resources and connections and influence that come in consequence of that standing. 
So when we think of children in that context, what do we think of? Well, objectively speaking, any of you who hold newborn infants in your arms know this, whether as a parent or just as an adult, the wonder of holding a newborn. And part of the wonder is, oh my word, the Lord knit this child together in his mother's womb. That is part of the wonder, of course. But part of the wonder is how amazingly helpless, not to say fragile, as doctors will be quick to tell you, but amazingly how helpless, how exposed, how insignificant in some ways, how vulnerable this child is. And that doesn't change overnight. One of the things that my wife and I loved to do, I'm guessing that there are others who might like to do it as well as Facebook bears sample testimony. When our first was born, we would sit in our living room in St. Elm, and not in St. Not in St. Elm, St. Louis, we'd, and we'd watch as this little blob of flesh wiggled around on the floor. We say, Look, he's wiggling. Look, he's drooling. Look, he stinks. And we pass him off. That was a long time ago, just for clarification. <laughs> a child's status is a one of, of insignificance relative to skill and strength, not relative to the image of God with which they are imprinted. But in terms of skill and strength, it is, they don't... They don't bear with them economic value at that moment, in fact, an economic burden. Or social value, as so many discover in our culture. Children come along, we no longer can do the things that we used to do when we were single or married without kids. And they're helpless. They're helpless in terms of physical strength, but they're helpless also in terms of, of understanding and mental skill. Everything has to be done for a child. And they're vulnerable. Even as they grow older, they're vulnerable because they lack discernment about how the household works. They lack discernment about the, how the world around them works. They lack perspective so that they chase their desires and their passions into very dangerous places. This is a child. And in consequence of that fact, children frequently find themselves in tenuous and fragile and dangerous places. They find themselves regularly facing the dangers of temptation and, and sometimes succumbing to them. They find themselves regularly quarreling one with another, perhaps with themselves, their siblings, perhaps even their neighborhood friends. To be consumed in a quarrel about who's going to be the first millionaire, billionaire, or trillionaire is part of what it means to be a child. To be easily offended and frightened and easily to offend and cause fear 
to wander about, to get lost, to run, to hide, to protect, to demand. I want to do it my way. These are all manifestations of a child, of a child's insignificance and helplessness and vulnerability, their weakness, their lack of understanding. So Jesus is giving an answer to their question, two parts. The first is this, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is ever being ever so gentle, more gentle than I can ever be, by bringing a child and saying, unless you become like a child. Another way to say what he is saying is, well, I'll tell you who is not the greatest, and it's not you. For while you are adults, that is to say, while you have grown up bodies, you are so consumed with this quest for status and your belief that you're doing an above average job at it and that even so, tomorrow, your ship will come in. You're so consumed with this quest for status and the hope that tomorrow your ship will come in that you fail to recognize that you are like children. You fail to recognize that we are like children. We are helpless. As hard as we work to pretend that we're not. We don't control our days. We don't control our weeks. We're not master of our own fate. We are helpless. We are vulnerable. Any one of us can walk out this door today and get run over by a bus. We don't know the number of our days. We don't know if today one of us in this room will have a heart attack and stand before the Lord. We just don't know that. That's not for us to know. We're vulnerable. We're helpless. And in the grand scheme of things, but dust. Flowers wither, grass fades, and we pass on. We're insignificant in the grand scheme of things. We are children. Even though we may own houses and drive cars and have grown up bodies. You see, the kingdom of God, the reign of God through King Jesus subverts and inverts our understanding of status. And so that brings us to the second question. Well, if we are not the greatest in the kingdom, then who is the greatest in the kingdom? And we find the disciples struggling under the same problem that later the rich young ruler will see struggling under. And that is, they ask, who is the greatest? They're asking the question to the greatest. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Um, me. Because I'm the king. Whether we ask it explicitly or, 
or as is usually the case, we ask it indirectly or, or implicitly. We're forever asking, well, well, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Asking, what must I do to be great? The key to being great in the kingdom is knowing that Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom and that we are not. Which is why at the very end, in Matthew's telling, he, he puts, captures all of the answer in this one line. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Because greatness in the kingdom of God, status in the kingdom of God, has little to nothing to do with what positions we are able to gain and everything to do with the position that King Jesus has taken. To dwell with us, to make his dwelling with us. You see, in the world, we want to sidle up to those we perceive to be great and powerful so that we can somehow gain from their greatness. But in the kingdom of God, the greatest, look at it, humbles himself to be born as a baby. He comes to us. He takes upon himself our name, our flesh, and dwells among us, brothers and sisters, greatness in the kingdom of heaven has everything to do with the proximity of the Son to his people. This means that as two people are gathered, person A knows two things about himself. I am not the greatest, and King Jesus is. But he also knows two things about the person he's gathered with. They are not the greatest. And King Jesus is. Do you see the change that that would create? Suddenly, we are free from our quest to be the greatest. Because we share a status of not being the greatest but being in the presence of the greatest. Brothers and sisters, when that begins to characterize the way we feel, think, speak, and act to one another and about one another and about the community in which we live, well, then our light will shine forth. The glory of the Lord will show and the peace of God's kingdom will come upon the earth even as it is in heaven. Let us go to him in prayer.